We want to become the most dominant, most physical, most disciplined team, not this year, not next year, every year. That's who we want to become. I sit here. That's why this is going to be a marriage made in heaven for a long, long, long time. We will absolutely set this place on fire. And if you're late, don't come in. Every time we play at home, if we can have a crowd like this, we will win a national championship. And good morning, Friartown, and welcome back to the FriarBasketball.com broadcast. My name is Craig Bellhumer, and on today's show, we begin the conversation around the Friars in the NCAA tournament. With just 11 games left, the march towards Selection Sunday is getting shorter and shorter, and it's never too early to start speculating where the Friars will land come Selection Sunday. At 15-5 and overall, 5-2 and in conference, it appears that the ticket back to the big dance is nearly a sure thing for Ed Cooley's bunch barring any sort of collapse towards the end of the season. With two leaders in LaDante Henton and Chris Dunn, this squad has the makeup to go deeper in the tournament than last year's team. Over the course of Big East play, you look at what Chris Dunn has been able to do with the basketball, now leading the country, yes, the country, in assists per game at 7.6 a contest. Dunn also ranks in the top 10 for steals per game. Then you take a look at LaDante Henton, who currently ranks 6th in the country in scoring, and with those two guys leading the way, as well as Carson DeRozier, who is just shy of cracking the top 10 for blocks per game in the country, PC has a lot of really good pieces. You've heard it a lot lately, but the key for the Friars moving forward is to solidify the play of the supporting cast. If the Friars want to make noise in the tournament, guys like Tyler Harris, Ben Bentil, and Jalen Lindsay will need to elevate their games and contribute. Take Lindsay for example. Since Big East play began, the freshman is just 4 of 25 from deep, which translates to 16% from three-point land. Fans may have been a little spoiled by Lindsey's early season performance over Florida State when he sank five of six three-point shot attempts at Mohegan Sun. Since that game, he has never made more than two three-point shots in any game. I tend to believe that Lindsey is a very good shooter, he just hasn't found his rhythm yet. Lindsey's primary role is to spread the defense. Very rarely do you see him penetrate. Lindsay's job is to make open shots, and he just hasn't done that to date. If Lindsay can begin knocking down two to three a game, that would be huge for PC. Secondly, take Tyler Harris. Harris, as many of you know, was taken out of the starting lineup by Ed Cooley to try and give a scoring spark off the bench. Well, that plan hadn't really been working. Well, now since over the past three games, Harris is averaging just over 12 points a game and has managed to turn over the ball just once which is key for Harris, who tends to find himself either turning the ball over by losing it in transition or picking up a quick charge. If Lindsey and Harris can step up and support Henton and Dunn, this team will be in a great situation heading into postseason play. And to learn a little bit more about what their chances are looking like, I'd like to bring on ESPN resident bracketologist Joe Lenardi. For those of you who are unfamiliar with his work, Lenardi has been predicting the NCAA tournament field for over 10 years, and does so with excellent accuracy. So with that, I'd like to welcome on Joey Brackets on the FriarBasketball.com podcast. Joe, thanks a lot for joining me this morning. Happy to be on, always happy to uh, talk hoops. <laughs> so first off, Joe, I'd like to start off by asking a little bit about 
how bracketology started. From what I understand, you began predicting the bracket back when you were a student at St. Joe's. That's correct, right? That is correct. Uh, you know, like a lot of people, I wasn't, you know, quite good enough to play the game uh, <laughs> at a high level, which means I wasn't at all good. Um, and, you know, at at five five one sixty five at the time, that not a lot of market for that in Division One basketball. Uh, so I became a, a dreaded sports writer, and that led to all kinds of great things in college basketball. That's awesome. And, and now you actually teach a fundamentals of bracketology course at St. Joe's. I was curious, just how quickly does that course fill up once it becomes available? That's a great question. Now, we should say this is not an academic course. You know, right. it's like if you go to a community college and take stamp collecting or, uh, you know, crocheting or something like that. But, yeah. Uh, uh, we opened it up uh, on a Friday, session one, and we were full by Monday. Wow. And it was just a matter of me sending out a tweet. <laughs> and, you know, say what you want about social media, but but when you have a, a, a niche and the, the people who are interested in you are all paying attention to that niche on social media, it's pretty easy to communicate with them. I'm sure. And, you know, that was something that I was going to get to um, a little bit further on, but we can actually jump there now. You know, um, I've read some of the stats. I think the, the, the most recent stat that I could find came from a USA Today article uh, back in 2013, which stated that you had an accuracy of 97% um, and predictions on seeding at 85%. And, you know, you mentioned social media. I'm sure you're familiar with Jimmy Kimmel's feature called Celebrity Mean Tweets that he runs every once in a while where celebrities read angry tweets from fans on his late night show. And, you know, I was I was going to ask you about fan interaction. Um, you have 126,000 followers on Twitter. And obviously a lot of people place a lot of stock in, in into your predictions within bracketology. Just how what's it like to handle that type of... Um, fandom, you know, a lot of people look at, wait, can't wait for your bracketology predictions to come out each week. So, uh, ju just what is that like, fan reaction? Well, first of all, I, I, I think you have to approach this by not taking yourself all that seriously. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saving lives here, right? Uh, or, or you know, curing disease. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just a, a fan with a spreadsheet who maybe understands this selection and seeding process a little better than the average person. Mm -hmm. uh, well, maybe a lot better. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think you got to give yourself a little bit more credit there. And but, but, but I mean, you know, ultimately, I don't have a vote. I'm no different than a pundit in the political arena, you know, looking at the landscape and making forecasts. Mm -hmm. uh, now, you know, ours is a little more data-driven, than some guy who gets on TV and says, you know, I think Jeb Bush is going to win the Republican primary by blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Uh, and you, frankly, what we do is a lot more fun. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but, 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 you know, by and large, the reason that bracketology online and on the air has been as successful as it has been is, is because of the passion of the fans, right? So, of course, they're going to disagree when you know, you quote-unquote diss their team or leave them out or don't give them the seating that maybe they think they deserve. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Uh, of, of course, fans are homers and biased. That's why they're fans. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, fan is short for fanatic, and I I try to remember that. Uh, when you know, when I interact with them, and and you know, it used to be people would email me, and then it was online chats on ESPN.com, and now it's it's Twitter, and 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 I like to joke, you know, that I appear to have the Drexel College guy marked to do a corner, uh, and 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 my, my wife and and I have two teenage daughters, they'll tell me, you know, Dad, all your followers are are college guys, and I'm like, well, they're the ones who go to the games. And uh, uh, so I am trying to I'm trying to increase my female demographic. I think I have 11 female followers, and uh, I'm working on that. And and maybe this show, Craig's going to put me over the top. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that's just the nature of the business, right? You know, there's always going to be more guys following college basketball than girls. It's just sort of how it goes. But Joe, you know, digging digging a little bit deeper into your predictions. Uh, you know, I can't imagine it's an easy process choosing seeds as well as where to place teams in different regions, um, as well as the play-in games that are now uh, have an impact on the tournament. Do you just lay out sort of like several indexes and look at all the rankings and and those types of things? How do you choose seeds and and where do you how do you choose where teams play in terms of region? I, I have all the data that you know the selection committee has available to them uh, all the official sources of data, RPI, schedule strength, you know, record against the top 50, all that stuff. Uh, I look at pretty much every other data source, source that I think is of value, uh, and, and I kind of aggregate that information onto a single spreadsheet. Uh, and then, you know, when it comes time to produce an actual mock bracket, uh, and we do it you know, twice a week now for the rest of the season. Um, I simply follow the principles and procedures for bracketing that the NCAA publishes. Now they're intricate, uh, and there are a lot of nuances about who can go where and why and what teams can face in what round, if it's a repeat of a regular season matchup, or they're in the same league, uh, et cetera. And, you know, after all these years, it's it's kind of internalized, right? Like, a lot of times, you know, I can do it without even thinking. Like, like a person who's really, really good at the piano probably doesn't look at where their fingers are landing on the keys, right? They just know because of, of repetition. Or, uh, you know, a, a, a person who can shoot 90% from the foul line it's muscle memory. They're not probably going through the mental checklist of each step of their release every time, you know, they they take a foul shot. Uh, although we've all seen players at every level, you know, who maybe could use to do that. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but so you know, I, I'm just going down the seed list, and and you know, let's say it's team number twenty three. Uh, and let's say that team is Providence. Let's just pick one, right? Okay. Uh, uh, you know, they, they'll come in. If they're number 23, that means they're a six. Uh, and if they're number 23, that means they're going into the field as the third number six after 21 and 22. Yeah. So there's going to be two spots available for sixes at that point mm-hmm. for teams 23 and 24. And, 
because the the sub-regional sites go along with the top four seeds in each region, the, the, there'll be two geographic choices for Providence at that point. And let's say it's Omaha and Jacksonville. Okay. Right? So you simply prioritize them to the closer spot that's available. But, you know, suppose they'd be matched up against a Big East team or a team that they already played. Uh, or suppose there's another Big East team that they could meet, you know, before a regional final. Mm-hmm. Or, 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 or suppose there's a home court consideration involved. So they may not go to the slot that they should get because of these other considerations. And that kind of, you know, pairing and bracketing nuances is still probably something that the average fan doesn't fully understand. Right. And, and Joe, in, in terms of just how much, do you place any importance on the eye test? I know you, I know you uh, work as a color commentator for, for St. Joe's Sports Network. You know, I, I'm sure, obviously, you can't watch every game across the country, but uh, has that ever come into it, maybe in your earlier years, where you considered the eye test, or, or is it strictly based on data? No, it's both. Um, I, I, you know, I, I tend to be more of a data guy, Mm-hmm. In, in evaluating and, and making these, uh, you know, kind of razor-thin determinations. Mm-hmm. But the reality is my job isn't to tell the public what I would do. My job is to tell the public what I think the committee is going to do. Right. Because, you know, they're the ones in charge. So, you know, part of this is trying to be in lockstep with their thinking. And, you know, having met a lot of these people over the years, and in recent years, you know, the NCAA has, has kind of wisely made the process more transparent uh, for, for fans and the public through their own mock selection exercises mm-hmm. and release of selected data, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, there are people in that room who are data people. Yeah. And there are people in that room who aren't. Uh, and, and, you know, I tried to weigh the qualitative and the quantitative uh, based on some logical uh, formula that, that, that isn't necessarily a straight percentage, but it is, how would I say, reflective of, of the team involved. You know, some teams outperform their data, yep. and others, you know, it's vice versa. So, so the eye test, I would say, absolutely comes into play because it has to come into play to mimic what those 10 committee members are doing. Right. Uh, now, I have my own opinions about the value of eye test versus the value of data, uh, and, and I may talk about those things and write about those things, uh, but, but generally speaking, I, I, I'm trying to make an educated guess of what the committee would do. And if I have a vastly different view, like if I think a team's a seven and, and they have a team as a two, <laughs> let's say, yep. you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to voice that. Right. Uh, but, but again, you know, I, I'm, I'm not naive enough to think that, that people care more about what I think and, and, and what the committee's going to do. Mm-hmm. 
And, and the reason I asked that question was for Providence specifically. And, and Joe, I'm not sure if you've been able to, to catch a PC game so far this season, but you know, for Providence with two really, uh, really good leaders in LaDante Henton and Chris Dunn, uh, both top 10 uh, combined to be top 10 and for scoring assists and steals in the country. So I was just curious, you know, when a team has has players or, or stars, how much that sort of went into that into that eye test. Um, so, little, if at all. Okay. Uh, in in terms of star players, now the type of team they are, uh, the, you know, are they consistent from game to game? Uh, uh, you know, a lot a lot of times there've been former coaches uh, on the committee. Uh, and they'll say, man, I wouldn't want to play against a team like that because, you know, that matchup zone is, is thus and so to prepare for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in a, in a one-game situation with not a lot of prep time. Um, I, I personally think that's a load of hooey. <laughs> um, y- y- we shouldn't be making these determinations whether on whether a team plays zone or mid-man. Yeah. Or whether they want run the Princeton offense or, you know, the Showtime Lakers. Uh, we... we we should be we should be making determinations on uh, who we think the best teams are, and and I tend to believe the more accurate way to measure best is uh, largely through data. Uh, and and other people want to go, well, you know, I'm a basketball person and I just know that team is good. Okay, well, you know, as my aunt Henrietta used to say, that's why they make chocolate and vanilla. <laughs> Uh, so, 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 you know, there's lots of ways to come at this and, uh, fundamentally th- th- there's considerable overlap between the two camps. Yeah. Like really, really, really bad teams don't generally have good data and vice versa. But when it's really, really, really close, I would rather go with something factual than an opinion. Yeah. At least you can then point to like somebody point to might look like a re- Somebody might look like a really, really good hitter in baseball and hit 230. And then you might have, you know, a John Cruck, 40 pounds overweight, hitting 330. <laughs> well, do you want the eye test or the guy who hits 330? Yeah, I'll take the 330. <laughs> right, exactly. And he even said, he said, I'm not an athlete, I'm a ball player. <laughs> <laughs> I love John Cruck. Um, it- I knew that. <laughs> So talking a little bit, I, I briefly touched upon uh, on PC, but uh, digging in on them a little bit closer here, of course, we, I cover Providence College. So uh, PC 20th in the RPI, um, with a strength of schedule of 27th in the country right now, 4-1 versus the RPI top 100, 3-1 versus the top 50, 2-1 versus the top 25. Joe, so you currently have, have the Friars in, uh, as well as six other Big East teams my question for you is, you know, as the Big East schedule continues to um, unroll, you know, everyone always talks about how Big East teams beat up on each other. Do, do you feel that that Providence still has a has a good shot at, at maybe cracking a five seed as well? Uh, do you still feel by season's end that seven Big East teams can get into the into the tournament? Okay, uh, let let let's try to address that in some order. Okay. Uh, first of all, every league beats up on itself. True. Because they're playing each other. Right. And, you know, that's not unique to the Big East. It's not unique to the Big Ten. It's 
just is. Right. Uh, so for every game, there's going to be a winner and a loser. Uh, so, so, you know, you're looking for separation. Uh, and, and that can come in a couple of ways. One is, you know, you win more than your share of those 50-50 games in the league, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we saw one Thursday night, you know, Providence kind of escapes Xavier. Yeah. Like that, that was a game uh, that would have been a worse loss than it is a good win. Uh, you know, because you have to win at home. And, you know, uh, Providence was leading, you know, I had it on, off and on. Providence seemed to me to be leading and in control most of the way and, and, and you know, then kind of had to win the game a second time. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but when they did, and, you know, that's all that ultimately matters. Uh, like in the NCAA tournament, they don't ask how you win. You advance if you have one more point than the other guy. Yeah. Uh, so when I look at it, you can separate that way, and, and Providence has done that right now. I mean, they're tied for first in the league, I think. Yep, five and two. Five and two with with Georgetown and, and DePaul, of all things. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, you know, I, I think most reasonable people would say that Villanova is the best team in the league, even though they're a half game behind right, yeah. at this moment. And at the end of the year, Villanova is going to be in first place in the league because they have the best players. Right. Uh, and, and, and that's usually a pretty good formula to be first. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but, but, all right, so separation after that will ultimately determine PC's seeding. That and what I think is, is their best credential are the non-league wins on neutral floors over Notre Dame and Miami, uh, especially Notre Dame. I, I mean, at the time, we would have thought those were two bubble teams playing over uh, at Mohegan, right? But, you know, now Notre Dame is is pushing the top ten. Yep. And, and you know, is is no worse than the third-best team in the ACC. Uh, and non-conference or dreadful non-conference schedule for the Irish notwithstanding – you know, they're winning their games now against the best teams on their schedule. You know, they've only lost one league game to Virginia, and Virginia is looking like, you know, Team 1A in America yeah. at the moment. Um, so I think Providence can separate to be, you know, the second or third team into the field from the Big East. And, you know, that could that could absolutely be a five seed. For them, it could even be higher if they were to you know, get a win or two against uh, Villanova. I mean, last year, you know, uh, Villanova was the best team in the league, but they lost to Creighton twice. So it happened, and, and, and maybe it happens again. I haven't really thought too much about that specific matchup or looked at, at when they play, uh, but I probably need to be keeping a closer eye on it. All right. Well, Joe, I'll leave you with one last question. Uh, and obviously, this one's going to be specific to PC. But based on all your calculations and observations this year on the Friars, do you think this is the finally the year that, that PC can get past the opening round in the NCAA tournament? It'd be the first time they do it since 1996-97. Wow. And I remember that team uh, pretty well. Uh, I think they got – didn't they get to the Sweet 16 or regional final? 
Uh, is it Penn? Yep, that's I want right. to say they lost yep. to Arizona in a regional semi or regional final. Yeah, uh, the Elite Eight. Okay. Which won the national championship, so it wasn't a uh wasn't a complete disaster for uh, Right, yeah. PC well, that's too bad. Um look, the experts will tell you and, and coaches will tell you that the tournament's all about matchups. So you know, there's two ways that Providence can advance. One is to be a good enough seed so that they almost can't lose the first game, right? Or will be, you know, a reasonable favorite. And the other is to get a favorable matchup. And, and, and you know, we're not going to know that until Sunday night, March 6, uh, 15th. Uh, so all they can do is play as well as they can until then. But I, I certainly like the composition of their team a lot. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, they're going to, they, they should be, a, a a pretty solid single digit seed. They should be favored in that first game. Um, and then the ball has to go in the basket. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the hope for the remainder of the season. I think this team is definitely built to go further than last year's team with two leaders. Regardless of who's favorite, I think that first round game is always going to be tough. But, Joe, just want to thank you again for joining me this morning. It was great having you. Loved hearing about the history behind bracketology and what it all means. And um, hopefully you'll have the Friars at a lower seed by season's end. Thanks, and uh, good luck to you and the Friars. Thanks again, Joe. You got it. So once again, that was ESPN bracketologist Joe Lenardi. Great stuff from him. Really interesting to hear just sort of the makeup of, of what goes into his predictions uh, each week. Now, like he said, he'll be updating Bracketology twice a week for the remainder of the season. So pay close attention to that um, just because he's so accurate each and every year. Um, but just to reiterate what I've said earlier in the show, you know, I really do feel the team is in a great situation at this point. 15-5. and five. Yes, there were a couple of bad losses to Brown and BC. But if they continue to take care of business in Big East play, Make a little bit of noise at Madison Square Garden once the Big East tournament rolls around. I really do think that when Selection Sunday comes, PC will be right around that 5, 6, 7 seed range. Again, depending on how the rest of the year unfolds. But that just about wraps it up for this edition of the FriarBasketball.com podcast. Once again, my name is Craig Bellhumer. Thanks a lot for listening. We will have another podcast coming out soon, so stay tuned for that. And for all your Friar Basketball news... Again, check out our website, FriarBasketball.com. Have a great night, Friartown. So high, you need a strength most don't possess. 